and you can grab a seat. Good morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, but you grabbed one of those black hardback ones on the way in, it's on page 757. Uh, if you didn't go grab one of those and you don't have a Bible, go grab one of those and keep it. Uh, it's our gift to you as a church. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 12 verses, and so let's read these together, pray, and, and see what God has for us. Starting in verse 1, the Word of God speaks to us like this. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you have told us the good news of the gospel here in your word. Thank you for the good news on display in this passage, that the King has come, that Jesus has been born. God, I pray that you would stir up in all of us the response that the Magi have, that we would worship Jesus for who he is as the true king. God, I pray that just like these magi, these pagans who you brought to Jesus to worship him, God, that even this morning you would have brought men and women in here who don't know you, and today would be the day they come to know you and believe the good news. God, would you be gracious to do that? Would you stir up our hearts now as we look at your word? I pray that you would in your name. Amen. I mean, well, there, there are some events that are just so big and life-changing that you have to respond to them. Uh, I mean, think about when COVID hit uh, in, in the spring of 2020. It, it really didn't matter how you felt about it, uh, what you thought about it. You had to respond to it. Everybody everywhere had to do something with it. I mean, for at least for a season, it was world-changing. The vast majority of us had to completely change the way that we worked, uh, the vast majority of us had to completely change the way that we did school. Uh, the vast majority of us had to completely change so much about our daily routines and rhythms of life and establish a completely new normal. Like, everybody everywhere had to respond to it. 
And it's a little bit similar. That's a little bit of what's going on here with the birth of Jesus, obviously in, in just a much greater way. The birth of Jesus is such a momentous event in world history. It is the world-changing event in all of history, so much so that you have to do something with it. You have to respond to it. You can't just ignore it. To ignore Jesus' coming into the world is to respond to it, and it's to respond poorly. You have to do something with Jesus. And, and unlike COVID, you know, you, you may have had a better or worse response to COVID. You may wish, like, oh, if I could go back, I would do some things differently. But, but at the end of the day, if you didn't have that great of a response to COVID, it's really not the end of the world. But that's not the case with Jesus. How you respond to Jesus determines everything. Everything about your life, everything about your future, everything about where you will spend your eternity. And so in this passage, there are three groups of people with three different responses to the coming of Jesus into our world, and only one of those responses is right. Only one of those responses saves. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage by looking at each of those three responses. Uh, and the first response we see to Jesus in this passage is opposition from King Herod. Now as we come into Matthew chapter 2, uh, we've moved forward in the timeline a little bit from Jesus' birth. You can see from the back half of Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus is uh, probably around two years old at this time. He's under uh, between one and two years old. And verse 1 tells us uh, that wise men or, or magi from the east, they come to Jerusalem and they tell us in verse 2 that the reason they came to Jerusalem is because they saw Jesus' star when it rose and they followed it because they've come to worship him and it's led them here. Now, this is pretty wild because these magi uh, are pagan astrologers. They don't know God and the Israelites would have looked at them as idolaters. They would have despised them because astrologers look to creation and to the stars for wisdom and truth and messages and guidance instead of looking to God and his word, which obviously was a huge no-no for the Israelites. And so they would have looked at these these magi, similar to the way we look at, at New Age stuff and Scientology today, that it's kind of woo-woo and it's a little bit crazy and, and it's a cult. But, but yet it's these pagan astrologers who are coming to worship Jesus. And, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but, but they didn't just show up out of nowhere. God's actually leading them here. They tell us in verse 2, they saw Jesus' star when it rose and they followed it. And, and what you see explicitly at the end of this passage is that this star is actually guiding their journey the entire time to Jesus. And so God's supernaturally using this star to lead them to Jesus. And if you're wondering why God's using a star to do this, I, I believe it's because he, Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of of a prophecy in the Old Testament that's pretty obscure to us, but, but shouldn't be. That's the prophecy uh, in the book of Numbers with the story of Balak and Balaam. And so Balak was this pagan king who wanted to curse Israel, uh, and he hired the pagan prophet Balaam to do it. But God ensured that Balaam would only prophesy his word, and his word was a word of blessing to Israel. And so he gives multiple different prophecies and words of blessing to Israel. In the middle of one of these, listen to what he says in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. And so Balaam, this pagan prophet, he prophesies. He says he sees a man who's coming in the future, and he compares him to a star. He says a star will rise out of Jacob, which is Israel. And then he says a scepter, which is a a ruler's staff. And so he's talking about a king. He says, I see this king who's going to rise up in the future and come out of Israel to be the king of the Jews. And this king of the Jews is compared to a star. So you have that prophecy all the way back in the book of Numbers. Here, Matthew is showing us that that star that Balaam prophesied about, it's now leading these pagan astrologers to the one who has just been born king of the Jews. And that's, that's wild, right? Matthew is trying to show us Jesus is the true king, not Herod. Jesus is the one who was promised and prophesied so long ago. And, and that's exactly where this passage goes next, because this mag, the Magi, they follow this star, and it leads them right into Jerusalem, right into King Herod's palace. And they ask Herod, hey, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And verse 3 tells us that when, when Herod hears this, he's troubled about this. The reason why is because Herod uh, was not ethnically Jewish. He was raised Jewish, but he wasn't ethnically a Jew, and he did not descend from David, which makes it hard to be the true king of the Jews when you're not really a Jew and you don't descend from the line of David. The Romans were in control of Jerusalem at this point, and they had set up Herod as a puppet king to further their interests. And so Herod knows he's not the real qualified king, and history tells us he was super paranoid about this. We actually have a lot of history on Herod, and and history tells us that Herod had one of his ten wives murdered and three of his sons murdered because he thought they were threats to his kingdom. He thought they were going to try to take the crown from him. We'll see it next week, but in the back half of Matthew chapter 2, right after this, he orders all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two years old to be slaughtered because he wants to stamp out the threat of Jesus to his kingdom. And so he's this vicious, paranoid, out-of-control king, and these magi have just told him the real king has been born. Herod knows he doesn't have the chops, he knows he's not the real king, and so he's troubled and frantic, and that makes sense because when these magi say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews, what does that mean? Well, obviously it means if Jesus is the true king, then Herod is not. I mean, this would be like, what the magi do here, this would be like going to Hitler during the the middle of World War II and saying, where is he who's been born ruler of the Germans? We've come to worship him and fall in line behind him and serve him and not you. I mean, what are you doing? That's a direct challenge to his authority. You're telling him you're on your way out. You can imagine what a threat like that, how that would send a paranoid, wicked man like Hitler into a frenzy and a rage. So this is what happens with Herod and and Jesus being the true king of the Jews. It's a threat to Herod's kingdom. And look, it's a threat to our kingdoms too. Because all of us have a little bit of Herod in us. All of us, just like Herod, want to be our own kings and run our own kingdoms and run our own lives. We, we don't want to be in the position where anybody else gets to tell us what to do. But if Jesus really is the real king, 
then to follow him means we don't get to make the decisions anymore. He does. We don't get to negotiate the terms with him. We submit to him. We, we don't get to call the shots anymore. He does. We don't get to pick and choose what we will and won't follow from his word. And we don't get to invent our own Jesus that gets us out from under having to obey things in the Bible that we don't like or that we don't agree with. I mean, this is part of the Christmas message as well. Jesus being the true king is a threat to all of our kingdoms. Christmas means the death of our little kingdoms if we're going to follow Jesus as the king. Because if Jesus really is the true king, then what he says about sexuality goes. If Jesus really is the true king, then what he says about loving our neighbors and our enemies and the poor, it goes. If Jesus really is the true king, then what he says about how we spend our money and how we spend our times and time and how we spend our hobbies and what we give our lives to, it goes. Again, we don't get to pick and choose what we will and won't follow. We submit to all of it because all of it comes from King Jesus and Jesus is the true king. That's what it means to follow him. That's what it means to worship him. And, and that's difficult for us because all of us have these areas in our lives where we really don't feel like following Jesus would be best for us. But, but I want to encourage you, Jesus being the true king, it's not just a threat to all of our kingdoms, it's also incredible news. Because, look, all of us, we think, uh, we think that we know what we're doing, but our kingdoms are just like a house of cards that blows over any time the wind picks up. We're like kids that keep running out into the street and trying to stick forks into sockets and slap our hands down on hot stoves. We don't know what's best for us. We keep giving ourselves over to things that will destroy us. And Jesus comes and redirects all of that and says, no, my way is better. My way is the path to life. My kingdom's where you find joy and freedom and flourishing. Jesus is not trying to take from you when he commands you. He's trying to give to you. He's trying to keep you from wasting your life on your own lame little kingdom. But Herod doesn't want that. He's got the wrong response to Jesus. He doesn't want to submit to Jesus. He wants to snuff him out because he's a threat to his kingdom. And so Herod's troubled, and verse 3 tells us all of Jerusalem is troubled with him because they know Herod's a loose cannon. They have no clue what he's going to do when he gets angry like this, but since Herod is so frantic, he quickly gathers together all the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders and experts in the Bible, and he gathers all of them together to figure out where this Messiah, where the promised Savior King was supposed to be born. And this leads us to the second group of people and the second response uh, of, to Jesus in this text, which is apathy, uh, which is what the chief priests and the scribes give us. Because Herod asked the chief priests and scribes, and look at what they tell him again uh, in verses 5 and 6. It says, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod asked, where the Messiah is supposed to be born, and they quote uh, Micah 5, verse 2, and 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, which says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, or 
Bethlehem of Judea, which is where verse 1 just told us that Jesus was born. And here's what's so interesting to me about this. Did you notice that the chief priests and scribes, they don't even have to rack their brain about this. They don't have to go back to the study and consult their books. They don't have to consult with one another about this. They just know this answer off the top of their head, and they get it immediately and exactly right. They know exactly where the promised Messiah was going to be born, and these magi have told them that this Messiah has just been born, and you know what they do about it? Absolutely nothing. I mean, think about this. These magi have just traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to come and find the newborn king of the Jews, the one they're saying is the Messiah, And these chief priests and scribes know exactly where the Messiah, the one that Israel has been waiting on for all of its history as a people, where that Messiah was going to be born, and they tell them Bethlehem, and they send the Magi on to Bethlehem to go look this out, and they just send them on their way. They don't go with them. Bethlehem is less than 10 miles away from Jerusalem, But none of these chief priests and scribes even take a half day's walk to go see if the Messiah, the one they've been waiting on, if he really has been born. And so while Herod is antagonistic and violent towards Jesus, the response of the chief priests and the scribes is just apathy, even though they know the right answer. They don't have hard feelings towards Jesus like Herod does because they don't really have any feelings towards Jesus. They know the right answers, but they don't do anything about it. They don't worship Jesus. So the chief priests and scribes are showing us that it's very possible to know a lot about someone without actually knowing them. I mean, for example, uh, women, think of how many of you this year have gotten to know Travis Kelsey. Uh, Think about how much you may have learned about him. Uh, maybe you've learned that, that he plays in the NFL, he plays tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, maybe you've learned that he's got a brother, Jason, who also plays in the NFL for the Philadelphia Eagles. Maybe you've listened to them together on their podcast that they do. Uh, maybe for the first time in your life, you've learned what the Kansas City Chiefs' schedule is and when their bye weeks are and where Travis Kelsey spends his bye weeks. Uh, you know, maybe you've learned that he played college football at the University of Cincinnati, and, and there was a, a period of time where he thought he was going to try to play professional baseball. He got kicked off the football team for failing a drug test, uh, but his brother Jason talked the coaches into letting him back on the team. You might know that he wears the number 87 to honor his brother Jason, who was born in 1987. You might know that he was born in 1989, like one of his close friends also was. You know, you might know all of these facts about Travis Kelsey, but that doesn't mean you actually know him at all, right? You have no relationship with him whatsoever. To be fair, you don't have any relationship with Taylor Swift either. Uh, You just don't know him. You can know a lot of facts about someone uh, without actually knowing them. And look, for some of us, that's true with Jesus. It's true here with the chief priest and with the scribes. And so look, I I know Christmas is supposed to be happy and light, good vibes and all, but but we would be missing the warning of this text for me to not warn you about this. The chief priests and the scribes are showing us one of the wrong responses to Jesus, which is that you can know a lot of facts about the Bible and still miss Jesus. 
You can know a lot of facts about Jesus and still not be trusting him, still not be loving him, still not be worshiping him, still not be submitting your life to him at all. I mean, the thing that should give us some pause about this text is that the religious outsiders hear God's word for the first time and they believe it and obey it and act on it, while the religious insiders know God's word, but they don't do anything about it. This should give us pause because the danger is that you really can spend your entire life in the church and still miss Jesus. You can know a bunch of Bible facts and still miss Jesus. And so the question is not, did you grow up in church? Were you baptized as a kid? Do you know some of the right answers? The question is, are you trusting Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Are you worshiping him? Are you submitting to him as your king? Look, if if you're not, I, I don't mean to be harsh with you, but I have to tell you, you are not yet a Christian. You can become one, but you are not one right now. Because going to church, getting baptized, knowing a few facts about the Bible, none of those things save you. Only faith in Jesus saves you. The the chief priests and scribes are showing us another wrong response to Jesus, apathy and indifference towards him. And look, these if this is where you find yourself, one of these two responses of opposition and rejection to Jesus or apathy and indifference to Jesus, I have to tell you, like these are not just bad choices you're making. These are damning. Like To reject Jesus and be opposed to him or to be apathetic and indifferent toward him, if you continue on in that, it will send you to hell. Everything in your life depends on how you respond to Jesus. But the good news is that if this is where you find yourself, in one of these two responses, like Herod or like the chief priests and the scribes, you don't have to stay there. Because the the apathy of the chief priests and the scribes, this right answer that they have about where the Messiah was supposed to be born, this actually leads us into the final group of people and the final response to Jesus, the only right response to Jesus, which is worship. Because in verse 7, after all of this, it tells us that Herod finds out from the Magi how long they've been following this star uh, to lead them to Jesus because he wants to know how old Jesus is. And so he sends them to Bethlehem to go and find this child, and he says, when you found him, send word back to me so that I can come and worship him too. Which, of course, is just a total lie, but look at what happens again in verse 9. Verse 9, it says, after listening to the king... They went on their way, and behold, the star, they, uh, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, this this is just incredibly rich with echoes and allusions to and and overtones of different passages and stories from the Old Testament, but I just want to highlight two. Uh, The first one is 1 Kings chapter 10. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba, a land from the east, she comes from the east to Jerusalem to see the to hear the wisdom of Solomon and see the glory of his kingdom. 
And it says when she gets there and hears the wisdom of Solomon, it takes her breath away. And then listen to verse, what verse 10 of 1 Kings 10 says about her. It says that she gave the king 120, 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And so she gives gold and she gives him spices, which is what frankincense and myrrh are. Uh, and so she gives these to King Solomon. And if that's not enough to convince you of, of Matthew trying to show this parallel here, listen to what verse 23 through 25 of 1 Kings chapter 10 says. It says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And so obviously Matthew's comparing Jesus to Solomon. Why? Well, who was Solomon? Solomon was the king of Israel. He was the son of David. And so Matthew's showing us Jesus is that new king. He's the new Solomon to whom wise people come and bring gifts. He's the true king. But Matthew doesn't want to just stop at comparing Jesus to Solomon, like he's just kind of the next in a long line of kings. He wants to show us more. Because in this same gospel, Jesus will grow up and he will tell the religious leaders that the queen of Sheba is going to rise up at the judgment and condemn them for not believing in Jesus because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than Solomon. Solomon just built the temple, the place that would house the presence and glory of God. But Jesus is the temple. He is where the, the presence and glory of God dwells on the earth. He is God in human flesh. Colossians 2 says that his body is the temple in which the fullness of God dwells. And the queen of Sheba, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and see the glory of his kingdom once his kingdom was established, once he had put all of his enemies to rest. But these magi have traveled hundreds of miles to come and worship a toddler, a one or two-year-old, because they get it. They get that Jesus is greater than Solomon. They get that Jesus really is the Messiah. They get that Jesus really is the true king and that he's worthy of this response of worship. I mean, think about this. This only makes sense to come and worship a toddler if Jesus is more than just a toddler and more than just a man and even more than just a king. It only makes sense if he is God in human flesh. And this is actually what Matthew wants to show us as well, because this passage also alludes to another uh, passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 60, uh, which prophesied that the day would come when the kings of the earth and people from all the nations would come to Jerusalem and bring in their glories and bring in their treasures and bring in their gifts to come and give them to God and worship the God of Israel, which is exactly what the Magi are doing here. They've traveled from the ends of the earth to the, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, to worship the God of Israel and give Him gifts. And it just so happens that the God of Israel is this two-year-old boy. I mean, it's astounding. That is 
mind-boggling, and it should produce in us the same sort of response of worship that the Magi had. Because the God of heaven, without giving up any of his deity, any of his godness, is having to learn how to walk and talk and read and write. The God of the universe who created everything is having to get his diaper changed. It's having to wear diapers. While Jesus is still fully God, and he's upholding the universe as God. Here, He is living a fully human life as a man, and right here in Matthew 2, as a toddler. When these magi travel hundreds of miles to see this newborn king and worship him, the, the, the one or two-year-old Jesus does not stand up and hold court and give them a sermon about the gospel or tell them about God or lecture them about philosophy. Because he's a two-year-old. Like, we don't even know if he's fully potty trained yet. He may not even be speaking in complete sentences yet. Because Jesus is acting like a normal one to two year old because he's living a fully human life, even as he upholds the universe as God. And so the natural question is why? Why would God do this? Why would God submit himself to the humiliation? of having to be a baby and be a man and having to learn how to walk and talk and read and write. The reason why is because He loves us. It's because He loves us. He took on all that we are so that we might have all that is His. He came as a man, as a human being, to be the second Adam and undo all that the first Adam broke. He came to make atonement, to make payment for sin so that we could be at one again with God. He came to be our representative, to stand in our place and pay for our sins so that we could exchange our sinful life for His perfect one. I mean, it's mind-blowing, and the more, it's, the more you think about it, the more glorious it is that God would do this for us. You know, I can understand a God that would stay up in heaven and hand down rules to follow and commandments to keep. Like, that, that sort of God makes sense to me. The more I think about this, the more it, it, a God like this just does not make sense. A God who would so love people who rebel against Him and reject Him that He would humiliate Himself by taking on flesh and, and coming to rescue us. But that's why He's so worthy of worship. There's no one like Him. There's no one who could do what He did and has done what he has done. And there's no news like the good news that he brings. Because I want to just go back to just who it is who has this right response of worship to Jesus. Of all the people you'd expect to be the first ones to worship Jesus after he's born, the Magi are not it. Again, they're pagan idolaters. They're Gentiles. They're not a part of the people of God. And their job is literally to be idolaters. To look at creation for wisdom and guidance instead of looking to God and His Word. These are the last type of people that you would expect to make a beeline to Jesus to worship Him as soon as He is born. But here they are. And they're not here by accident. God is supernaturally directing their journey, ensuring that He leads them to Jesus. These magi did not sneak into the back door of the party And God all of a sudden be like, hey, how did you guys get here? Who invited you in here? 
No, God wanted these pagan idolaters here to worship His Son. The first people that God brings to worship Jesus after He is born are not pastors or religious leaders. They're pagan astrologers because the gospel is not about what we do or what we don't do, what we have done or have left undone. It's about what Jesus has done. Because the the Jesus we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 2 The reason he's so worthy of worship is because he's going to grow up and live the life of perfect human faithfulness that you and I have not lived. And then he's going to go and lay that life down on the cross as a sacrifice for us and rise from the dead so that we could know forgiveness and freedom from our sins and life with him forever. Look, Christmas brings that good news. Matthew is telling you here That because of the work of Jesus, it does not matter if you didn't grow up in church, if you've lived out your days up to this point as a pagan, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done because it's not about your work, it's about Jesus's. The Magi are God showing us that He loves sinners and wants to save them, that He wants to transform them into worshipers of His Son because His Son, Jesus, is worthy of all of our gifts all of our trust, all of our lives, all of our worship. This is the only right response to Jesus. We see Jesus for who He is and what He's done for us, and we worship Him like the Magi. We trust Him. We we open up our treasures, and we give Him our lives. We give Him our time. We give Him our talents. We give Him our treasures. We give Him everything. We give everything to Him because He first gave everything for us. Jesus is the true King, and He's worthy of all of our worship and our trust. So would you give that to Him this morning? Let me pray that we would. Father, thank You for the good news of the Gospel. Thank You for the coming of Jesus into our world. Thank You that You sent Your Son to be the true King to rule over us with grace and forgiveness and love and to transform us. God, thank you for so many in this room who have experienced this good news of being transformed from opposition or indifference towards Jesus into worshipers of your Son. God, thank you that you still do this work of transforming us into worshipers. Would you do it even now? Would you stir up in our hearts a fresh response of worship for who you are and what you've done for us? Would you help get our eyes and our hearts settled on Jesus and resting in and rejoicing what he's done as the newborn king to come and save us? God, if there are those in here who don't know you, would would the words of Matthew 2 be like an arrow in their heart that pierces and convicts them and leads them to conviction and and leads them to know they have to give their lives to you and submit to you. God, would you do that work in our hearts even now? I pray that you would in your name. Amen.